out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the musician and singer-composer. It's Lawrence, member of Felt, Denim, and also his current musical adventure combo it is go-kart mozart uh, who brought out four albums recently including the classic from 2018 mozart's mini mart do check it out anyway the most interesting thing is the fact that there's a film about lawrence that has just been released this is on bfi and the film is titled lawrence of belgravia a film by paul kelly he of heavenly records and also east village fame Um, And this is it. It's available via the BFI subscription service. And also you can buy the Blu-ray, but you can also stream it via iTunes and also on Amazon as well. But I will give you more details a bit later. But anyway, it's a classic film. Do check it out if you love films about sort of interesting and um, kind of, yes, kind of very tortured at times singer-songwriters. I say tortured, but um, it's not completely right, but intense at times so um it's a great film so i recommend it so this is it after several minutes of casual chat mostly about the decorator and color schemes we got down to the exciting subject that was the formative years of indie pop really and um, i was slightly finding it amusing the thought of lawrence enjoying indie pop and i asked him did he enjoy the jingly jangly sounds of the 80s and this was his response no. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> he probably embraced the, the world of jingly jangly pop back in those mm. heady days. No, I, I never, no. I didn't, no. <laughs> I liked a few of the acts, you know. Did you? God, I'm surprised. I, I liked a couple, um, like um, Pete Astor. Did you? Was that, uh, is that is that because you know Pete Astor, or did you actually like his music? Well, I... When I first saw him, I didn't know him. I went to London to the living room. You know, Alan McGee's club. Alan McGee, yes, the, the famous. Yeah. The very so I went to his club in 1984, and it was called the living room on Tottenham Court Road. Yeah. And um, what happened, I, I, I'd read a tiny little bit, just a tiny bit, and I thought, sounds interesting. And then <clears throat> Alan had approached me. through. He wrote me a letter saying, I've got this label, I really want you to be on it. This was very, very early. We yeah. were still on Cherry Red. And he said, if you ever want to leave and come to my label. And I was in London, and I had read a little thing in the enemy that his club was on this night. So I went to the living room, and the Loft were playing. That was the first band I saw. Yes. And I immediately thought, well, this, this is amazing, this band's so good you know this could this will be a great label for us yeah um yeah so so i like the loft um um and early prime scream yes and then but the rest of it i you know i didn't like it at all when you were i mean sort of just kind of curious what were your kind of Mm. very early musical kind of influences what what sort of band or what album Mm. or single did you get that made you think God, this is this is a life-changing moment. Mm. For me, it was the punk rock singles of 1977. Right. I was 15, and I would I discovered the music press in only in January of that year. I never read any papers before, um, and I started reading just at the right time when the punk explosion was beginning. And so I would buy the singles and they really made me want to write that kind of song, you know, fast-paced pop yes. song. Um, but what about, was, your, what about your, te- you know, your early pre-teen years, like, you know, the, oh, mon- yeah. the monkeys, the banana splits, gotcha. the, the wombles, the Beatles, any of that? Did you, did you sort of hum along and sort of think, God, I want to be Paul McCartney one day? Well, I, we start, I got into the radio, you know, started listening to the radio properly in 1972. So 1971... I remember it really well, and I started thinking 
hey, these, this is good, this mu- I like this music. And then 1972, I made a, an, um, you know, sort of concerted effort to, I'm going to listen to this now properly. Mm. And then I started thinking about buying singles. But what I was doing was listening to the charts every Sunday, and then we'd have the radio on before I went to school, and then we had a program called Top of the Pops every Thursday, Wednesday night. It was on Wednesday then. Um, so I immersed myself from the age of 12 yes. into the pop music of the day. I wasn't into anything underground. I didn't know underground. I, I simply knew what was in the charts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I loved... First of all, I loved David Bowie and T-Rex. The classics. The, cl- the, the classic. classics. Because I'm from that era, you see. Yes. I also loved many, many of the singles. Like, if I find an old chart from 1972, I know every single record in it. And I, I like most of them. Yes. Practically all of them. Did you, did you sort of... Because actually, one of the... Um, my parents didn't have great music taste. Actually, they were terrible. Um, but it was like, you know, country and western and various things yeah. like that, which, mm. you know, and not great country and western, you know, Jim Reeves, people like yes. that. Tabby Jim Reeves, Ra- I Jim, know. Jim Reeves, so good. But we did have a couple of albums which had a huge influence. One was The Carpenters, which I thought yeah. lyrically were fantastic. And the other one was dear old Roger Whittaker. And, um, <laughs> and I still have a great fondness of him because lyrically, you know, there was one song, New... New World in the Morning, and oh. you cover that, don't you? When when did you first yes, discover the delights of Roger? Just, uh, when, <clears throat> when that single was in on the radio and in the charts, you know, I, I heard it, it went in, you know, I listened to it as it was hit, and um, I would just hear it on the radio because before the pop music, there was a channel, there was a radio station called Radio 2, which my parents listened to. Yes, they love that, don't they? Yes, and it was always on in the background. So I was immersed into this middle-of-the-road music, and I took to it straight away. I I loved these melodies. And I remember New World in the Morning, um, lots of these songs um, from before the pop music started in 72. So I had a, like a grounding in middle of the road. Yes, for a well, few years before that. But those lyrics of like the Carpenters, I always think, well, of you know, they were so sad and depressing and melancholic, yep. and yep. and a, about alienation that you know it's no wonder that one started to enjoy Joy Division and the Smiths later on because it was like you know singing you know I say goodbye to love, no one seems to care if I should live or die. I just think it's one of the saddest songs ever, you yeah. know. But it was well, dressed up with this couple, this kind of boy girl. Well, yes, <laughs> brother-sister kind of act, which was very weird. Well, that was the song that, that made a massive impression on me, Goodbye to Love, and it stayed with me my whole life, really. That particular song. I mean, I listen to the Carpenters' hits when they're on the radio, but that one was a song that, you know, I treasured. Yes. And because it had this amazing guitar solo at the end, uh, <clears throat> it's... and that really... Was it was a big influence on me, uh, like a pop song with a guitar solo, uh, and that's really kind of sums me up, really. Absolutely, my early life, and that's my fun. early recording life in felt was about trying to write a pop song but with um, beautiful guitar solos. Yes, perfect pop. Yes, Radio Two. It was Jimmy Young in the afternoon, wasn't it? With uh, what's the recipe today, Jimmy? Well, I didn't. We I was at school then, so what we had was in the morning before Radio One started. You would have, I think, an hour or two hours of Radio Two before the pop started. So it was on every morning. Yes. And then when you listen to the charts on a Sunday afternoon, which at that time was a six o'clock to seven o'clock then radio one shut down and it became radio two again so straight after the charts you'd have a program with the mike sam singers and they would be singing the old songs in a vocal harmony way so i would listen to that as well so i was immersed in middle of the road but but those lyrics, not only of, you know, like the Carpenters, but Burt Bacharach, mm. Hal David, mm. those sort of songs, they're all about sort of like 
breakups and sort of saying Not goodbye to, to lots. And, and Roger Whittaker, that first album he did in 71, which I know well, he does The Last Farewell, A Special Kind of Man, and also The Streets of London, which, you know, is alongside, you know, yeah. New World in the Morning. So it was kind of yeah. immersed in, in a sort of... Record, yeah. It is quite an extraordinary one. And I, I think when you're sort of very young, they, those lyrics mm. do have a great impact on your, your mind because in a way... No one's ever written anything quite so better. Actually, the thing about Roger Whittaker, because I was a bit obsessed with him for a while, and then recently I looked at his Wikipedia page to find out a bit more about him. I don't know if you ever read any of his what happened to his parents, but when they were living in Kenya, they were subject to a brutal attack by a gang of men, who and they tortured his parents for sort of eight hours and murdered his father. And um, oh gosh! And I thought, gee, people have the weirdest, you know, amazing backstories, don't they? I mean. You just wonder how anyone... Wow, I never knew that. No. So the next time you listen to New World in the Morning or sing it, you know, think of poor old Roger Roger and and what happened to his parents, which were um, one murdered and one tortured. So... I know we have we have we have amazing wow. lives. I know it's extraordinary how he keeps going, but um, so then as <laughs> that brought the party down, didn't it? Um, <laughs> but as as we trundle through the seventies, I mean, you were in Birmingham at this stage, weren't you? Hanging out yeah. with members of Duran Duran. Um, oh, it, not mm, not hanging out. <laughs> In the film, it it sounded like um, you were all part of that. Because a bit uh, like the the, the London Camden scene in the sort of 90s, you felt like everyone lived in this community and everyone... No, Birmingham is nothing like that. Right. No, none of... No, I didn't... I was um, not part of the scene at all. I was was younger than everyone else. And I wasn't um, welcomed into the scene at all. The only person I knew was... Um, the drummer from Duran Duran. Right. Because he went to my school. He was a year older than me. He was in my school. And we would sort of talk a little bit in in the punk club that we all used to go to called Barbarella's. Yes. And we would... You know, I, he would give me about a minute or two of his time and then go off with his friends. And I'd be kind of waiting all night for another minute if he would grant me one more minute of his time. He's very nice to me, but he obviously had, you know, new friends and new things to do. And I was a younger... I was the year below him. Yes. So we we weren't mates, but Mm. he was kind enough to talk to me for a minute. Yes. Which was was nice, because it at least made me feel... Okay, I'm getting somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but because years later, decades later, there was this film, um, the the um, King Rocker about Robert Lloyd and the Nightingales, yeah. and, and Barbarella's kind of features quite a lot in in that. Oh, exactly. So you see in it. Okay, yes. Yes. And did you uh, feel like it depicted? Oof! Sorry, the Birmingham. Sorry about that. Um, that's hay fever mm. for you. The Birmingham scene really well. Well, I, I wouldn't say really well. I thought I think it gives a glimpse of of what it w- was like, um, but you could never, without photographs or film, show what Barbarella's was like because it was kind of unique. It was, it was beautiful. It was, I'd say, it was the best club I've ever been to. I've never been to a better club since. It was just kind of. It's hard to explain without seeing it and experiencing it, but it's such a wonderful place. Mm, yes, well, it did seem like there was... And a... every, yeah, and everything happened there. You know, the, all the bands kind of grew up at Barbarella's and met each other and formed groups, and I would see the local bands. Robert Lloyd's band was called The Prefects. Yes. And they played Barbarella's, and they were the best, but the premier Birmingham punk band, the best. Yeah, and there was quite a scene, wasn't there? Because sort of 78, you you sort of hit 16. Is this a point where you leave school or do you stay on? No, I left school when I was 15 in 1977. I was was a day away from being held back for a year. Blimey, that was... Yeah, I'm so close. (laughs) I know, that would have been horrendous. So then how do you develop your next period before, you know, you start felt... What happened was uh, I decided I had to learn to play guitar. There was no way around it. 
I, I didn't want, I wanted to write my own songs and I wanted to be a guitar player because I loved television. Was it Robert Lloyd? Um, Richard Lloyd. Richard Lloyd, that was his brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Verlaine. And I had to play guitar as well as be a singer. So I had to learn, so that took a couple of years, you know. So I bought a guitar in 78 and started to write songs and learn. And it took until March 1980 to form a band. I always wanted to form a band, always. But in the meantime, I made a single on my own called Index. Right, it features in the film, doesn't it? Yeah, which is simply a lot. Lo- I tried. To, I thought, how can I compete with everybody? I can't really because I can't write proper songs yet. Um, what can I do to cause great attention to myself and um, get into the enemy? I'll kind of try and make the strangest record ever made. Yes. Maybe the worst record ever made. I, I I can't make the best. Maybe I can make the worst. So I made this record in my bedroom. And it's a, simply a noise on the guitar. Yes. Is this the guitar that features in the film that you try to pawn? No, no, no. That's a, that's much much later. Right. No, the guitar on index. I I would. In those days, I would um, swap guitars all the time. Go to. The, go to the second-hand shop and buy and, you know, swap it for another one. Always trying to find the sound. Yes, blimey. Did you find that um, when when you sort of had made that commitment, there was no going back, there was no plan B? Because there's a few artists in life, David Bowie, Lemmy from Motorhead, and there's a few others, who just went, right, that's it, it's going to be music or nothing. Is Did you have that same commitment, almost like... I don't know, meeting the devil at the crossroads and saying, that's it, I'm going to sell my, sell my soul to rock and roll. Yeah, well, that happened when I was 12. Did it? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so at school, I, I, I simply had a good time because I knew I was going to be in the music business. I didn't know what, but I knew, well, well that's what I'm going to do. I never had it. Um, any other interest in any other occupation, I didn't have a sort of get-out clause where, you know, I had um, degrees or something to fall back on, or I didn't know, from when I was 12, I I was going to be in the music business. At that time at school, I thought maybe I would write lyrics for somebody, That, that was the only thing I could think of at the time that could be that I knew I was good at, and I thought, well, I could use, I could write lyrics maybe for somebody, because there's that guy who writes for Elton John, so Bernie. maybe I could do what, yeah, I thought maybe I can do what he does. Yes. Do you, <laughs> had you been sort of, I think it was the same with people like Ian Curtis and Gerald Morrissey, were you drawn to sort of any particular poets or any writers or any, I don't know if, you know, Jack Kerouac came into your sort of consciousness or... Not at school, No. The only books I read at school were Clockwork Orange and 1984. Right, Burgess and all. Yeah, those are my key texts. And um, apart from that, it would have been um, sort of non-fiction, you know. I'm interested in non-fiction, really. Um, Not novels so much. So the, the books that really made an impression were Clark Orange and um, 1984. Right, blimey. Mm. And and luckily there were two, you know, fantastic, iconic books. Yes. Well, no, you couldn't get more iconic, Mm. could you really? But then, I mean, did did your parents kind of worry about you when you were sort of growing up? Did they have any kind of like, Lawrence stays a long time in his bedroom. He should he should get out more and play football. <laughs> um, I did play football. Uh, they no, my mother obviously wanted me to get a job that had a future because when I left school, the jobs I was getting I was getting were um, bottom of the rung jobs because I only got a job to, for example, save up to buy a guitar. 
Yes. You know, that, that, and then I would leave. I would just work for a few months and leave. So I was working in like where, warehouse, um, factory, things like that. <clears throat> very, very, you know, bottom of the bottom of the rung kind yes. of jobs, which which I, I which I didn't mind at all because it was simply a means to an end. I didn't wasn't looking for a career. The career was going to be in the music business. That was my career. Yes, and then you had that moment, the great sort of combination like Keegan Toshak or mm. you know Lennon McCartney, yep. Mara Morrissey, D Bank. Yes, D Bank. Is he? When did he arrive in your life? So Morris was at the same junior school as me, so I knew him from when I was seven. But then he went to a different comprehensive for you know four or five years, and then we met up again when he left school at sixteen, a year later than me. I'd already left for a year, and then he left the following year, and. A friend of mine um, brought him. A friend of mine brought him round to my house to tune my guitar for me. Right. Because I couldn't tune my guitar, and my friend, this guy I knew, said, "Oh, I I know someone who can tune a guitar," and he brought Morris round. The Morris tuned my guitar. This was 1978, and in about 10 seconds, and I was completely you know under his spell i thought wow that how could you how could you do that so quick i don't understand and he was like i'm just tuning it up it's, and then he started playing a song on my guitar to check it was in tune and it was mr tambourine man and i went well how the hell can you play that <laughs> how, do you, how do you know how to play that song and he went it's just three chords it's so simple i went oh i can't believe it and then they, he went away, and then I started thinking, this is the guy for me. Yes, absolutely. And then from 1978 onwards, I was thinking, I can, you know, I'm, I'm going to do a band with this guy. Yeah. When but you... it took until March 1980 to ask him, to, you know, to say, look, let's, we, we, try, we kind of had a few plays together in 1978. He'd bring his guitar around, and we'd try and, you know, see what, make him but he wasn't ready to be in a band he was very young and he didn't really you know care about being in a group so much so I didn't we didn't really talk about it that much but then in 1980 March we we were going to sign on together sign on the door we both walked to the dole office and that morning I thought I'm gonna ask him now I'm gonna say look let's throw caution to the wind let's form a band together and that was it, the moment. And that was it, that was it. Yeah. Walk into the doll office. God, yeah. it has to be done. It's quite romantic, actually. Did you, I mean, when you went into the studio, you did the first album, I think this is in Woodbine Street Recording yeah. Studios. John John A. Rivers. Yeah. Were you, was that, did you find that a good experience, an, e, an easy experience being in the studio with someone like John? No, that was very, it was a big wake-up call because we had the songs on the album and they sounded great in our rehearsal room. And when we played them live, like with before and with these bands we used to support, they were amazing. And then we got in the studio and they was like, oh God, what the hell is that? It just does not sound like it did in the rehearsal room at all. It's completely different. <laughs> so it was a big issue, yeah. Right, jeezy Coming crazy. to terms with this new sound that John had given to us yes was that i mean when you worked with john leckie but this is on the other the, the third mm. album the the strange idols and you do the the classic you know sunlight bathe the mm. golden glow which is still a, a, a sort of a will we'll go down in history won't it as one of the greats i mean was was john leckie a completely different experience well um we we carried on with John Rivers, and after the first album, we learned how we learned a little bit of how to work in a studio. So what we did on the second album was was really good. You know, we got there by the second album, um, and that was a, I think that's a beautiful record, The Splendor of Fear, 
and then we moved to Lecky, and um, he, he was very, very experienced and gave us another different sound, which I, I really love as well. Um, and John John Lecky balanced the record perfectly. Right, perfect balance on that record. I can, I can, um, you know, hear the professionalism on that record. It's it's recorded really well. The playing is is the pop songs on that record. Splendor Theory are more kind of um, dramatic long songs. Yes. Two long, two long pieces on it. One on side one, one on side two, and it was an atmospheric kind of underground record. Then when we made, went with John Leckie, we tried to do what we did on the singles on a whole album, trying to make it poppy all the way through. And John was great for that. He has a wealth of experience, and the balance is very good. So, yeah, I love that record so yes, much. Yes, I can imagine. Did, you, did it feel quite a big step to go and then on the, on the follow-up, Ignite the Seven Cannons, working with Robin Guthrie instead of, you know dropping John Leckie well John wouldn't work on the next album because I um, we didn't we wouldn't do demos we didn't do we didn't do demos and he wanted to hear some demos so what happened was we quickly recorded a couple of the songs for him and they were terrible because we were useless at demos we couldn't do them we couldn't you know record on our own in a local studio so it was awful and he, he said, you know, I don't like these new songs. You know, there's nothing there. And I said, well, give us a chance. Let us come to the studio. And we'll tell you our ideas and we'll develop them. Don't worry. We're not very good at demos. And he went, no, no, they all sound the same. Stop, start, stop, start. They all sound the same. So we had, so he wouldn't do the next album. Um, and that's, that's um Bad luck for him because it was a, you know, we had a bunch of incredible songs. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, obviously you work with Liz Fraser at this stage, who's, yeah, who's the darling of the indie world. Was that Primitive Painters? Yeah, how did Primitive that, Painters. How did that song come together? Because it was part of the album that Robin was making with us. Um, um, Liz was, you know, his girlfriend, so. She was there at the studio. We were at the um, studio in Edinburgh, residential. Um, so she was with him because they were, uh, you know, in a partnership. Um, so when we recorded Primitive Painters, Robin went upstairs to listen just, and said, come down here a minute. And he said, I'm going to play this song. I want you to sing on it. Amazing. And, yeah, and I gave her the lyrics. And she walked in the studio, and <clears throat> what you hear is what she did. Yes, and it's... Um, were you amazed when you heard the playback on it? Oh, gosh, we were... Yeah, we, you can imagine. You know, we were... We thought, wow, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> this is certainly, this is the highlight of the record. Yeah. This is the big one on the record. This is the big one. And, and, and what happened was we completely ran out of time, really, to mix the album. And Robin just sort of rushed through it, and I don't like the mixes on the record. They're not they're not good at all, and that's why I, I remixed most of it in 2014. Right. And if you buy a new copy of the record now, you'll get a John Rivers remix of, of all the song, most of the songs on that record. Right, that came out. Yes, it did. And come you out. and you can hear them. You can now hear the songs properly. Yes. Without any of Robin's Cocteau Twins effects. Dear <laughs> <laughs> old Robin. He swa- swamped us with his kind of idea of production and it didn't really work for Felt. It worked on Primitive Painters only. Yeah, fair enough, isn't it? Did you know when you were... And, and, and for that, but for that reason alone, it was worth doing the record with him because we wouldn't have got Primitive Painters without... If it had been with John Leckie, we would have had a different version of Primitive Painters. Yeah, absolutely. Did you know when you were recording that, that that was going to be the last, you know, that you and Morris weren't going to be sort of working on the next project together? No, no. He he got married before we went to Edinburgh. Um, And then when we arrived back in Birmingham, 
and unloaded the van. He in the street. He said to me, "I'm finished now. That's it." And I knew he really meant it this time because he'd be, we just got married. <clears throat> and usually, what we'd do, we'd give him a couple of weeks, and then we'd go to his flat and get on our knees and beg him to come back and go. We can't do it without you, Morris. Please. We we tried, but we can't do it. Yes. And then we cajole him into coming back. But this time I knew that that's it, it's finished. Uh, it's finished. He's married and he's, he's he's starting a new chapter in his life. Yes, and then you also enter the world of Creation Records. Was it, um, yeah. I don't know if it, it was, Ed, is it Ed Ball, Joe or Alan? Did I couldn't, I don't know which Ed one. Ed wasn't there then. Ed wasn't there. Joe, Joe was, Joe was, um, there and Alan was the boss. Right. So was it Alan who sort of done the deal with you? Oh yeah, it was a verbal deal on a handshake. Right. Yeah. There's, there was no paperwork at all, which suited me fine. I, I loved that idea. It was all done on trust. You know, me and Alan trusted each other, and that was the way it was. Yes, absolutely. And then you know, obviously, you've got quite a different. Um, well, not a completely different lineup, but it's sort of a key member. What was it like then, sort of comp- coming up with ten ten tracks and going into the studio without Morris? Well, what, what happened was I decided to look for a keyboard player. Um, no, sorry, we. I'd had I. There was a period when Morris left before Ignite Seven Cannons. So complicated. <laughs> so he left. So I thought, OK, I'm going to replace him. And I found Martin Duffy. And then, uh, as usual, we thought, oh, we still need Morris. And now we've got Martin. God, we could be a really big band. This could be great. Uh, so Morris was intrigued by Martin and thought, yeah, this could go somewhere now. OK, got a keyboard player. I'm really into that. Yeah. So he came back and we made Ignite Some Cannons. Then he left again. So that left me with just Martin, and I decided to just change the format of the band completely. Moved to, we moved to creation anyway, so let's become keyboard-based as opposed to guitar-based. So that's what we did. Yes. And did that... Um, I mean, you've got to change, haven't you, really? Let's face it. David Bowie... Well, I didn't, wa- no, I, didn't, I didn't want to change at all. I, I, would, I wanted to do ten albums exactly the same as Morris. I didn't want to change one bit. I loved what, what we had with incredible and it, it should have gone on till the end of the band till the end of the decade and that's why I was constantly begging him to come back because for me it was the perfect sound yes I, di- I didn't want to change at all because with the because I sometimes get confused with Momus mm. actually but you because he seems mm. to sort of bring out an album but you with Felt mm. You had the project of doing ten albums in one yes, decade, didn't you? Yeah, that's not Momus, that's me. That is not Momus. He just kept coming out with them, actually, <laughs> forever, I think. Yes, it's an interesting his, his, his thing was an album every six months forever. <laughs> Regardless of anything. Yeah, mm. so when you came to do... When did you decide on that concept of um, just spending the 80s, you know, navigating? When, when I came up with a concept for the band. I didn't want to do a boring pop group, just a boring band, you know, normal band like everybody. I wanted it to be a, um, like a project, an art project. Yes. Cause when you... And I thought we could make an album a year and then disband and then everybody would love us. Yes. Well, it's interesting because on the last album, Me and, Me and a Monkey on the Moon, you, you, you know, it's almost like a bit of a super group, isn't it, with lots of different people coming in. Plus, you have the very famous Adrian Borland, who was in the sound as well, weren't you? Did it, did it have a sense of grandeur doing Me and a Monkey on the Moon? Yes, by that time, Felt was a three-piece. It was me, Martin Duffy and the drummer. So... We needed to supplement the band with other musicians, and I was so sick of um, having members come and go, come for a year, then leave. I, um, what, what we did was we just hired, we simply um, hired our friends who were around us to help help us make the album. 
Yes. Like as guests, you know. So that's why um, the bass player is Robert Young from Promise Cream, and backing vocals is Rose McDowell from Strawberry Switchblade, <clears throat> and Pete Astor. Um, and then the guitar player was John Mohan, who was in a band called The Servants. He's a very good guitar player. Yes. And, and then to pull it all together, I asked John Leckie, um, <clears throat> and I, because we were friends, and I said, look, John, this is the last album. I want you to help us bring it to fruition, you know. And he, he said, yes, I'd love to do that. Fantastic. And then he phoned up at the last minute and said, um, I'm with, you know, I have to carry on with the Stone Roses. I'm booked. Um, I can't get out of it now. You know, I'm committed to the Stone Roses. We're, they were trying to make their second album. Right. This is the beginning of that long process. So he he had to um, be on call for the Roses, so he couldn't do it. So I thought, I knew Adrian Baldwin from the sound, and I hadn't spoken to him for many years since the 1980, because we played with the sound. <clears throat> and I and he, at an early gig, he came up to me and said, I want to produce you. I'd be very good for Felt. And I said, okay, that sounds fantastic. And we tried to get him to produce the first record before John Rivers. Yes. And what happened was he was busy with the sound, so he couldn't do the first record, so we went with John Rivers. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be a great idea to get him to do the last one instead of the first one? He couldn't do the first one, so maybe he could do the last one instead. So I rang him up. I said, remember when you wanted to do our first album? Well, we're doing the last one. Do you fancy jumping on board? And he, he said, said yes. He said, fantastic, I love it, I'll be there. And what was the experience like? Oh, you oh yeah, it's great. Adrian's such a beautiful character. Yes. Uh, he was so good, he helped us so much. He was like, he was the only producer that actually came to rehearsals with us to, to you know, make notes on the songs and give us ideas on... Um, you know, construction, things like that. Yes, God. Very, 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 I was very impressed. God, it's such a sad story, though, isn't it? Very sad story, yeah. Jeezy, queasy. And that was the 80s, which obviously you avoided, you know, Rock Against Racism and um, Red Wedge. Did you Did you just have a pure artistic kind of path? You know, there was no social, political kind of, like, temptation to get involved with any any movement. I, I didn't know what was going on. I never watched the news. I purposely um, took myself away from reality in, in every aspect possible because I lived in a horrible place, Birmingham, you know, tower blocks everywhere, ind industrial strife and God knows what. And I, I simply hid away from it all because it, it, was, it was so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to be... I wanted my life to be beautiful i wanted to be surrounded by beauty yes so i hid away nice there you go Ten years. but then with, with with your your you know denim um did that did did you move to new york for this project yeah just to, for the beginning i thought i was going to move forever i'm going to leave england i'm going to get to new york now and I packed all my stuff, put it in storage, <clears throat> and bought a one-way ticket to New York. Yeah. And yes. I, I bought a guitar in a... Um, what do they call them? Pawn. You know, in, yeah, pawn shop, yeah. Pawn shop. Bought a guitar in a pawn shop. <clears throat> and sat in this one room that someone had given me very kindly, and started writing the denim album and realized oh god my god i'm in the wrong place you know i started sort of thinking about england thinking about london thinking about when i was a young boy at school before i was in the band and it all related to england so i realized i was in the wrong place I had to come back Yes. And then every week, I'd buy the enemy, which which was imported. So you'd buy the enemy, and 
I see all this stuff happening in the UK with Stone Roses and Primal Scream were on the TV in the charts and I knew I was completely in the wrong place I came back. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Yes, and obviously you... Did you... I mean, things like... Because you do Middle of the Road, don't you? And yeah. um, Which features Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap. Were you just kind of in one massive kind of... Not regression, but were you just kind of pining for something deep deep in your DNA about dear old Blighty? Oh, oh, you've gone quiet. Hello. I think your phone just... Hello? Are, you, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, you went quiet on that. When I mentioned about sort of, um, you, you know, middle of the road... Yeah, and the phone just went funny. It did go a bit strange, didn't it? Fine. Hang on a minute. Doodle. Just going awful weird. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. That's okay. better. Yeah. Yeah, so I was just mentioning, you know, did... Yeah, so, so I, what happened was I began to think of the time before I was in Felt. Yeah, and how great it was, and how innocent it was, and how much I loved it in Birmingham in the seventies, um, and how reality really took a, gave me a good kicking in the eighties, and how boring the music scene was, and how better it was in the seventies when I was growing up. So I kind of started thinking about doing a record, reflecting all that stuff. Yes. It... And what, I, what had happened is I got my old box of singles out of storage and I started listening to them. And I realised, wow, these, these records are so great. Um, you know, Mark the Hoople and whatever. Hello, all these things that I loved. Yes, Daryl Gary Glitter, we love them. And I thought, the Stone Roses are so big, they're so unique. They've taken over the world. I can't simply do an ordinary band with a guitar and compete with them. They've done it, really. They've done exactly what all of us on Creation wanted to do. They've done it. Yes. If I'm now, I have to do something completely different to anything else in the music business. That you know. So I, I started this looking back and looking towards the future and welding them together yeah and it was um and obviously we suddenly got very patriotic in the sort of 90s the john major years and until new labor came in but you also had brit pop so you, you must have become something of a celebrity with a lot of people name checking you know felt and sort of appreciating the band but also you were touring denham with you know did you tour with pulp didn't you during that time as well yeah we didn't play very much. I didn't want it to be a touring band at all. I wanted it to be like a cartoon band. Yes. And so we did gigs by every now and again when we had to, you know, we uh, we did the pop tour to obviously promote us. Um, so we would do something if it was special. Um, but I think what Denim did was start off Britpop it was the very beginning, and I think without denim, may not you know it may not have been the same because we were looking back to a great England and talking about London, yes. and and I think it, that stirred something in all these bands. Absolutely, because it did. they would bring they would bring us up, Swade and bands like that, and say, "Hey, can we play with denim?" And they were all interested in denim, everybody, and then. Because of circumstances, we were just overtaken. Yes, it's a fickle. So I think Britpop. I think the idea of Britpop came from Denim. Yes, that's that. That makes sense. That does. Well, I mean, I, I actually know it did. Yeah, I don't. Yes, well, I I think with a lot of those bands that suddenly appeared on top of the pops, they had been. I don't know, they'd been in the audience when they had watched a lot of the eighties bands, and I guess you would have also had that momentum to go from one decade into another which not many artists do actually no. i sort of find that they often struggle when you look at sort of um i don't know you think of david bowie in the 70s and then david bowie yeah. in the 80s it's not it's not a pretty it's song. true it's you're, not. you're right what you're saying not many people can um 
you know, straddle decades. No, it's often quite painful, and they don't quite. <laughs> I know the they work. Get stuck on they get stuck on the um, yeah. Yes, which on then the barbed wire. They, they get stuck on the barbed wire of the um, of the. Oh, what am I trying to say? Okay, let's edit that out. Yes. Well, I, I'm just thinking of to Steve get the barbed wire. I'm thinking of Steve McQueen in The Great Escape now. Um, but but I think what they do, they 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 they're so when they're having their zeitgeist moment, they're sort of not worried about the trends, they're just creating this movement and then they have a bit of a break and then they come back and think, okay, I must get the latest hip producer to make that sound that other people have got. And their their, their music and that album often sounds like a bit of a poor substitute of something else. So I think people like Bowie and there were other artists as well who I weren't hugely big fans of, but I realised their work in the 80s like Robert Plant or Rod Stewart were like, oh dear, that's, that's, you've kind of lost it there, matey. Because it just sounded such a, it sounded so sort of at times quite cheap and a bit like, well, how come you've kind of, you know, you're not leading the, the music scene anymore or even attempting to, you're just kind of, you're, you're sort of, I suppose you're basically in the slipstream, aren't you, at that stage? It's very strange what, what happened in the 80s because hardly anybody made the transition. Yes. And it seems to be the case. People um, almost belong to one decade. Yeah, I know. This is true. Yeah, somehow they, the, they don't. Mm. The energy force they, leaves them, doesn't it? I, I can't work. I've tried very hard to work out what it is, you know, what, what goes wrong, um, why this happens. Yes. But, uh, and I, I don't, I can't really give an answer to that, but it, but it is true. It does happen. And I think for me, I, I was um, fortunate enough to be aware of this problem um, so I was able to tackle it Yes, head on with with another new project, Go Kart Mozart, mm. which is, I must admit, the last album you did Mini Mart is the classic but at the same time, you know someone wants to make a film, Paul Kelly who was um, mm. heavenly and in a, in a particular indie band that I now forget but um, yes God, they had an amazing album cover. Um, so how did this... East Village. East Village, that's the one. Yes, that's a great album. Well, a great cover. Um, with some good singles. But, yeah, so how did this come? Because cause I, I, you would have noticed that suddenly a bit of nostalgia comes in and there's suddenly films on the wedding present and June Brides, not the June Brides, the go-betweens and the slits and the dolly mixtures. And but most of those, are, most of those, what you said, are after our films. Yes, so they all come after dolly yours. Dolly was before. Yeah, but they only have had a film kind of recently, and I don't even know if it got released, but it's kind of... Who? Do- the Dolly Mixtures, or Dolly Mixture. Um, Dolly Mixture was made, it was a half-hour film um, made before our one, before ours. Oh, was it? Right. Yes. yes. But there's been a lot of kind of films made since yours. So yeah, I'd... absolutely. They're so... all copying us. They are, absolutely. People realise that there's a, there's a need to document it. So how did um, or Paul come into your life, Paul Kelly, the director? Mm. Well... Because we're in the same scene, you know, um, our paths crossed a lot. And at one point, I asked him to do some felt reissue sleeves in nineteen in two thousand. Yes. And Cherry Red were reissuing, do, doing a, a quick um, CD reissue. Cherry Red, you did know. you say? Yes, yes, the label. There yeah, was yeah. a quick, a quick CD reissue of all ten albums. It wasn't a big deal. It was just a quick thing, just to keep them in the shops. And I asked Paul to to do the sleeves because I knew he was a good sleeve designer. Yes. And that's when we first started talking. We'd seen each other at gigs and everything, and we even they even supported Felt East Village. Right. So, but we weren't friends, and we just knew each other. And when he did the sleeves. He got to know me, and I'd visit him nearly every day, um, quite a lot. And then, and he just got the idea. He thought, "Well, this is a crazy character. What's going on here? <laughs> this could be my next film." Yes. And that's how it happened. And did you enjoy it? And did you think? Did you immediately say yes to it? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Because it gave me something to do with my life. It made me think, well, here we go. This is a really good chance to be famous. Yes. And was it filmed in a very short period of time? Seven years. That's not a short period of time, is it? Oh, blimey, that was a long period of time. <laughs> did you find... My God. Did, you, did this, this, did this hope help you emotionally navigate that period? Well, we, we didn't mind because that, there's a film called Dig, which had come out the year before we started. And it was a documentary about two bands in America. Oh, is this the... Um... Andy Warhol yes. and the Brian Jones Massacre thing. Yeah. So that we, we everybody knew this story about this film took seven years and there's all God, how could a film take seven years? Everyone was talking about this. And so so when ours was you know, taking a while, we didn't we didn't we weren't um, bothered because we thought, well, Dig took seven years, so maybe that's the nature of it, you know. That it can work. We knew it could work because we'd seen it. Yes. And it was a great film. So we thought it doesn't matter that sometimes we're not filming for six months. You don't have to do it all in one period. No. It's not going to spoil anything. So we, we, we just carried on till we were finished. Blimey. That is, and, and, it's, just, and it's just come out on BF, BFI, hasn't it? Sort yeah, it's out on BFI, the, the, best, um, the best label in Britain. Absolutely. You know, the, you know, the best DVD reissue label yes and did you find it quite revealing sort of watching yourself on film and the, the way you no. were answering mm. questions and being probed yeah i loved it it's, I it's fantastic i saw it when we opened it at the bfi um that was the first time i saw it because i didn't watch any rushes or anything i didn't want to know what paul was doing i didn't want to see anything i didn't want to get in his way I just wanted him to do his film how he wanted it. And I didn't want to impose or <clears throat> get involved in the direction. So the first time I saw it was with the audience. Yes. Mm-hmm. And did you keep sinking down in your seat as, as it went on, or were you feeling like, God, I'm going to go in the foyer and get all, give autographs later? Um, hang on, this person. Oh. Hang on, let me just swim in. Yeah, if it's the postman. Just... some woman screaming right there. Oh dear, that's. Oh, so it's not the postman, it's just. No, a... talking loud. No, it's the postwoman. Oh, postwoman. That's all right, it's gone. It's gone. Oh, so that's it's good. Gone. Yes. The decorators dealt with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's gone. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, yeah, that, but how did you? How were you responding to that experience of watching it? You know, on on because it sort of. Yeah, I just wondered if if you felt sort of like I, I, I mean, it's very emotional. Yeah, oh my gosh, it was very emotional. Especially when I had to get up on the stage at the end to receive this crazy five minute ovation of applause. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, and with very. So what? Just briefly, you might have mentioned, but I've missed it. What period of time does that cover? That seven years? Because I didn't. Yeah. No. Okay. So let's think that. Film was started in um, um, gosh, gosh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe two thousand, early two thousands, maybe. Right. Was it, I don't know. To be honest, I can't remember. So your notes, the notes are in the two thousands, and it's probably. 2007 maybe right so there you go that's when you when no you st- 2005 maybe 2005 yeah. oh god because it seems 2012 so much... probably 2012 to 2005 to 2012 probably right so you'd started mozart's go-kart mozart yes because we were making an album and that was we we concluded the film with the fact that the album's finished so you, you see us making an album during the during the film yes with and various... then it concludes with the album being finished yeah amazing i mean with the all i mean with that project but then also your go-kart mozart the last album you did was over four years ago have you which 
again, has that sort of beautiful, you know, pop quality to it all the way through and is instantly kind of enjoyable. Do you, have you got another album in the making at the moment, you know, at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So we've got January is the new album. Um, and before that, we have a catalogue of things happening each month. <clears throat> and there's a new, there should be a website up that, that will convey everything. Yes. Each month, like a bulletin each month saying, for example, you know, we have a 10-inch single, we've got a video, we have a folder of ephemera, um, T-shirt, you know, there's something happening at each month. Yes. And as you, well as us playing live as well. Yeah, and are you still on Cherry Red or some part of Cherry Red? Yeah, I've got my own label called West Midlands. Right, okay. Which is, which is run by the Cherry Red organisation. And at the moment, because at the weekend just passed, mm. talking August 2022 here, mm. you were at the, the kind of almost a, a C86 love fest, weren't you, in yep. in Glasgow? Did you, did you enjoy... The community and the and the and the weekend. Yes, we we played on Sunday, so we arrived. I mean, come on, look at that. We played on Saturday, and we arrived during the afternoon. Um, I got. I wanted to see Pete Astor play because yeah. he was playing, but we just missed him. <gasps> so, I yeah, I really wanted to see that that gig. Um, and really, we were kind of just waiting for our slot, really, because when you're playing, you, you, it's hard to watch other people, to be honest, because you're so keyed up. Yes, absolutely. And you're getting ready, and you're thinking about forgetting all the lyrics and things like that. Yes, that's understandable. Are you finding, and obviously with so many reissues of Felt as well as go-kart Mozart are you and now the film are you sort of finding a sort of a new audience that are discovering the band but yeah. you know all your bands because I did notice on dear old Spotify I mm. mean phenomenal amount of playlists uh, uh plays each month for all your sort of groups which was really like, yes you know it's like I don't know something like I don't know was it 80,000 a month for felt and and so I, I was just thinking there must be a lot of kids around the world who are dis- well, yes it's a shame because um I don't you know I wish I wish I got paid for that yeah that'd be nice you know I wish I, I just say to all our fans don't listen to me on Spotify go and buy the record because I don't make any money from Spotify so <clears throat> um it's best if you buy a vinyl. Yes. Because that's the only way I, I make money. Um, and if you if you don't buy the vinyl, then one day we won't be able to make vinyl anymore. And none of us will be musicians because you can't survive on Spotify. No, you it can't. It literally eat. pays you pennies. You can't. You. It won't. It won't feed you. Critical acclaim doesn't give you any money. No, but do you no. have? Um, a, you must have a huge fan base around the world, though, or a fan base. We do. We, we have a massive fan base, and if every one of those people, every one of those fans bought a record, I would be. I would be rich and famous. Yes. But for some reason, they don't buy the, They don't. They won't buy the record. They'll. They'll, they'll listen to us on Spotify, and talk to talk about us and tell all their friends and do all the right things except for one missing bit one missing yeah bit of the jigsaw puzzle they must buy an album yes they must go and do it i'm sure they i'm or, sure or a cd or a cd yeah because we like cds as well yeah they in the film you did mention that didn't you the plastic you weren't keen on the plastic quality the the cd did I say that? I think you said that. Something about the, the aesthetics of a CD, the plastic yeah, the, case. Probably. Yeah. The, the, the dual case, I know what you're saying, yeah. I it, found a way of getting over that. Yeah. We we put a cardboard cover on them now, and it's got an outer. Yes. And Which we, is, we cover it, the plastic with an outer. Yeah. Out, uh, and that takes care of that problem for me. So since so it's on the film, it it looks quite grim. You know, you're packing boxes, you're getting evicted. Mm. Is your sort of on the personal level has things settled down a bit more now? 
Yeah, because at the end of the film, you see me move into a flat, and that's the flat that I'm still in. So, um, I'm, you know, it's very fortunate. I went through one of those bad housing problems. Yeah. Um, um, so it was um, really hard to stay in London, really, but I did. You know, I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't move. They they kicked me out of Westminster. I was literally, I was I wasn't literally thrown, but I was theoretically thrown out of Westminster. Um, yes. You know, Westminster, Westminster Borough. That's what I was trying to think of. And no stability, so, uh, you'd be a bit more stability. Now, so when, I mean, I know in the film you say, I don't know, you were, you would never reform Phil. And actually reforming bands always work, it mostly go terribly badly because there's issues. Do you, and, you don't, and you don't play any, any of the material. Have you made sort of peace with the kind of that period of your life so, you know, you can still listen to the records and appreciate them even if you don't want to go and re- reform or... Um, play any of the songs from that period well I mean I've always loved the records and I've always played them I've never stopped playing them and listening to them and thinking oh that's good or or, gosh I wish the bass was a bit louder or or like my vocal on that or hey that's a great lyric gosh yes things like that I've got so I'm always listening to felt and I love it I enjoy it I've never um, had a period where I didn't like felt ever ever, but the, what I say is, I'm not going to reform the band. I mean, you know, why should I? I'm an artist and I move forward, and I'm more like a painter really. Like a painter will just keep painting different paintings, even well into his eighties. Yes. Or her eighties. You know, they just painters just carry on. And they do new paintings all the time, and they don't go back, mostly. So I'm more like a painter or a film director who's constantly making new material. Yes, well, yeah. or more more than the music, more than a, more than someone from the music world. People in the music world tend to give in very quickly and think. Oh gosh, I need some money. We better reform the band. Yeah, well, I think also, I think it's kind of a fickle world, especially the fans, because they can follow somebody for five years, but then their life takes a sort yes. of t- t- turn, and they have to get on with bits and pieces, which is understandable. And then Very, you know, yes. and then you know, the artist is slightly dropped, but then ten, fifteen, mm. possibly twenty years later, people start to. Not necessarily with rose-tinted sunglasses, but sort of go back and listen again. And think, actually, this is really good. Yeah. And and I, people... I love I love that. I love that when people come up to me and they've been away and they saw you at say Manchester Uni, and then they've gone away and had a career and a family, and their kids have grown up, and then they see you're playing again and they come, and it's remarkable. I really like that. Yes, I, I know. think it's great because I've been doing it all this time they've been away and then they come back and why are you still there <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean it's yeah quite funny really. it is quite amazing and, and, and i think it's great that artists drop out of popularity and have really lean years and terrible times and then come back and it's all good again and it shows the strength of character if yes you can, if you can continue and not give up and get a job well it's uh, there aren't that many like you in that world um because mostly they do give up and they can't take it anymore and they they get they, they break so you're one of the the few a bit like lemmy david bowie people like that who just have stuck with it until the very end and then it's, that's it and um i guess that's what makes a true artist really yeah i, I agree yeah it's it's got to be done but look i hope i hope all these reissues do well but i'm sure the film's mm. going to bring you a whole new world of fans and, and it really has to be honest i've noticed it you know already since since it was released it's brought um you know it's it's moved me up the fame ladder that's quite a few rungs yes are you still waiting for the letter from kate moss though the email? um yeah you know i wouldn't mind 
<laughs> I reckon me and her get on really well. Yes. A, a, a weekend in Glastonbury next year, perhaps, in a tent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you ever been in a tent? Do you know what? I've never been in a tent. Perhaps, perhaps Glastonbury next year could be the tent moment. Oh, gosh. If we, if we, we're planning on playing Glastonbury next year. And isn't, I'm, no way I'm going in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even staying there. We're, we're going there, we're playing and we're coming back. <laughs> All in one day. Not a TP? No. Not at all. No, that would, that would blow you. That would blow a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> yes. But anyway, look, Lawrence, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And um, I can... I'll, I'll tell Jill who set it up at the BFI. Yeah. But BFI, cherry red. I mean, God, you... It's all good, isn't it? It's all working well for you. Yes, it's, it's, get, it's getting better every year, yeah. I know, this is great. You've gone through the murky bit. It's a bit like one of those science fiction films where you go through the asteroid storm yeah. and you come out and you think, we're through the other side. I'm, I'm, on the, I'm, I'm in the light. This is good. Yeah. Everyone's going to love everything I do. Even if it's rubbish, people are going to still give me a good review because they can't... They... We won't be doing rubbish, though, I promise you. No, I know, but... We won't, nothing will be... You know, we will not be releasing anything rubbish. No, no, you haven't. And I do, actually, <laughs> I do love the last, the last album, the mini. You wait till you hear this one in January. You wait. Yeah. This is the. This really is the one. It's the combination of all the go kart bits and pieces, coming to fruition. Excellent. Yes. Well, look. Thanks ever so much, and um, yep. Best of luck with your decorators. They're, Thank you so much. They're tricky. When will this be broadcast? Well, hopefully next week. Mm. I'll put it out next week because it's kind mm. of current and people love it. Right. So um, I'll put it out and about. So, yeah, there you go. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes. And Jill, Jill will let me know. Yeah, she'll definitely, definitely let you know. And then we can then... And, well, I, and I think you'll be, probably be surprised that lots of people listen to it. Yeah. No, they, they'll love it. <laughs> they do. But look, take care. Thanks ever so much, Lawrence. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. And that must be in conversation with Lawrence talking about the, his life in music and also about the film Lawrence of Belgravia, a film by Paul Kelly that's out on BFI, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it's on Blu-ray and also available online from the BFI shop, usual outlets and digitally on the BFI player subscription. And um, I do believe it's available also streamed via iTunes and Amazon, or you could just buy it from that, those departments. Get it for Christmas. We'll get it for the autumn. It, will, um, it is brilliant, and I'm not just saying that, so there you go. Um, and if you want the BFI website, it's bfi.org.uk forward slash shop. It's a classic. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me for some nice reason... You can on Amazon, no, you can't. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yes, it's groovy. Uh, keep it positive. And also, all these interviews have been archived, aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. That's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>